my name is Zach Thompson. I'm on staff here at Calvary. Thanks for being with us on this day that, that Christians around the world celebrate as, as a day that we call Palm Sunday. It, it remembers Jesus entering into the city of Jerusalem. As he did so, he entered as a king. People were praising him, praising God. They even shouted out, blessed is this king who comes in the name of God. It's this beautiful picture uh, just to see how Jesus was treated there that takes on an entirely new meaning from the fact that just seven days after that, the very next Sunday, Jesus will have died and he will have been raised again. And so as we're in our series in the book of Luke, we, we get kind of an interesting comparison. On this day that is Palm Sunday, as we remember how Jesus was, was treated we're at a place that's just a few days after that in our story. In, in our part of Luke that we're in, it's just a few days after he was treated as a king, as he was treated so honorably. And in our passage today, he's treated very much so the opposite. He's mocked, he's treated unfairly, and he will be killed by the end of Luke chapter 23. You get this striking comparison in just a few days going from Palm Sunday to Good Friday. In our passage for today, out of Luke 23, you, you get the details of Jesus' death and, and certainly that would be enough. But as you read through it, there's even more details about how he died. And time and time again throughout this chapter, we see that Jesus endures the worst of injustices. Injustice is a word that, that, I mean, unfortunately comes up fairly often, doesn't it? And when we think about things that are morally wrong, things that shouldn't be that way, that we respond to as saying, that is not fair. It should not be like that. When we think of humans who are killed or abused or maimed in some way, we would call that injustice. When we talk about how humans are stripped of, of basic rights that they ought to have, when they're treated in a way that undervalues them, as, as we see all people are made in the image of God, God gives all humans value. That in these moments, we would say that is unjust. It, it's, it's a word that continues to come up, unfortunately, with regularity. But what we see in this passage, all of these details of what Jesus is going through on his way to the cross, on his way to die in our be on our behalf, we, we see the beauty of the story is that salvation has been won for us. But he gives us something more to hang on to as well. That as people who continue to hear about injustices in the world, things that go wrong, things that are not fair, things that are not right, as we look at the treatment Jesus receives, as he willingly goes to the cross, we see that yes, Jesus endures the worst of injustices as he is bringing God's perfect justice into this world. As he goes to the, his death in this way, he is doing so in, in a way that gives us hope, gives us direction, gives us the ability to have something to hold on to as he faces everything that we do and that we might face. Jesus endures the worst of injustices as he brings God's perfect justice to this world. Uh, let, let's see what it is that Jesus faces and how that gives us the ability to face what 
whatever we might. So uh, I said Luke 23. I'm actually going to backtrack as, as I uh, tend to do. Uh, we're going to start in Luke chapter 22 in verse 66. It's still this final day of Jesus' life. This would all occur on what we call Good Friday as we see the first of Jesus' trials, his first defense uh, against people who are accusing him, his first injustice that he faces. Uh, this is Luke 22, starting in verse 66. It says, when day came, the assembly of the elders and the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. Uh, uh, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away. This is, they led Jesus away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the son of man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they, all, uh, so they all said, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own lips. We talked about the injustices Jesus faces on his way to the cross. And the first thing that we see in this passage is that Jesus is accused without cause. He is accused without cause. Because as we, we look at that passage that we just read, what are the charges that are brought up against Jesus? What is it that he's accused of in this passive passage? Nothing. And instead, they're asking him questions. They're, they're asking him uh, if, if this is who he is. As we, we read through this final week of Jesus' life, we see story after story of, of the religious leaders, the chief priests and the scribes, looking for ways to arrest Jesus, looking for some way that they might accuse him, accuse him looking for reason for them to destroy him. And wouldn't you know it, they're still looking. Essentially, what they're trying to do is they're trying to get Jesus to incriminate himself. If you're the Christ, tell us. If, if you're the son of God, are you saying that you're the son of God? It's essentially, are you setting yourself up to be a leader that's, that's going to rival us for authority? Are, are you saying that you're the religious authority here that's going to tell people to do something differently than us? They're bringing no charges against this man they have had arrested they're instead trying to get him to incriminate himself. It's kind of like uh, maybe you've had this moment. Uh, uh, you, your, your child walks in and they have this guilty look on their face. You don't know what they've done, but you can tell that they've done something. So you ask the question, uh, what did you do? And then I, I would often be on the other side of things where I would be mischievous. And my response would always be nothing. Uh, and then I'd look even more guilty on my face. But I'd eventually break down and say what it was. Well, you know how our walls used to not have marker drawings on them? Well, uh, now they... So the difference between me being constantly guilty and Jesus in this passage is that there's nothing that will incriminate him. Luke makes it very clear whether or not Jesus is guilty or not. Uh, well, maybe it's a little bit subtle. Let, let's see if we could, we could pick up on it. Let's see if, if Luke is setting him up as guilty or innocent. Uh, Luke 23, uh, verse 4, Pilate says that he finds no guilt in Jesus. Verse 14, Pilate says again, he finds no uh, guilt in Jesus. And then verse 15 mentions, Herod also found no guilt in Jesus. Verse 22, for the third time, Pilate says there is no guilt in Jesus. Verse 41, on the cross, the thief is there saying, I am guilty, I deserve this punishment, but Jesus is innocent. Verse 47, after Jesus has died, this Roman centurion says, certainly this man was innocent. 
all throughout this chapter, we keep coming to that idea of Jesus is innocent. He has done nothing wrong. And yet he is here on trial. Here he is being, uh, being asked questions, being demanded of himself to incriminate himself. It, it makes it all the more clear this injustice that he is facing. He's been arrested. He's been mocked. He's been hit and struck. And all the while he is accused without cause. The second injustice that we see Jesus face is that he is tried without truth tried without truth. This is uh, Luke 23, starting at verse 1. It says, then the whole company of them arose. So this is uh, the elders of the people who gathered, the chief priests and the scribes. The whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, the governor of the region of Judea. And they began to accuse Jesus, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. This is taxes. And saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout Judea from Galilee even to this place. In this passage, there are three charges that are made against Jesus. Three things that they're saying he, he has done wrong. Uh, the first is that he's been misleading the nation. Then he was forbidding them to pay taxes. That's the tribute to Caesar. And then is saying that he himself is a king, one to rival Rome. Uh, just have a couple observations here. Uh, none of these charges that, that are brought up against Jesus are the things that they were questioning about. Remember, they were asking him, are you the Christ? Oh, sorry, you're saying that you're the son of God? They're asking him those questions, yet those are not the charges that they bring to Pilate. Because if they showed up to Pilate saying, this guy claims to be the son of God, Pilate would just say, neat, why, why does that matter to me? Why does he care what, what is going on with, with the religious leaders being upset here? And so two, when we look at these charges, they're specifically crafted to get Pilate's attention. Pilate's main job, what he was doing as governor, was make sure that Rome got all of its taxes and keep the peace. And so you look at the charges that are brought up against Jesus, uh, that he's stopping people from paying taxes, he's stirring people up, he's misleading the nation, he's claiming he is a king to rival Rome, that he's going to get people following him rather than following Rome. They're all designed with Pilate in mind to get his attention, to get him to act on it. it which gets to the third observation, uh, why do they need Pilate? If they're this upset about him, if they've been looking throughout this entire time for, for reasons to accuse Jesus, why does Pilate need to be involved at all? Well, we do know that the religious leaders had the ability to punish crimes themselves, misdoings that they saw, but they couldn't issue the death penalty. They needed Rome's backing for that. So that tells us right from the get-go that this is weighted against Jesus. They're not looking to silence him. They're not looking to win him over anymore to join their cause. They're not, they're not looking to get him to fall in line. They're not looking to slap him on the wrist. Now they are looking to nail his wrist to a cross. And to get their way, they're willing to lie. 
They're making up these claims against Jesus. I mean, what does that say? These are the religious leaders, those who are supposed to be leading God's people at uh, Israel and following after him, and they're lying about this man. Because make no mistake, these charges against him are all fabrications. Jesus has clearly said to pay taxes. He, he said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but render to God what is God's. He, he hasn't been stirring people up. In fact, he's been doing the opposite. Uh, rather than getting people in a frenzy about, oh, he must be the Christ. He must be the one who's come to save the world. He's constantly been saying, don't tell anyone what I did here. Don't tell anyone what you saw. That, that doesn't seem like a great way to stir people up. He's also been telling people, rather than uh, demanding your rights get met for the care of others, live sacrificially. Deny yourself of these things. That, that's not something that, that's going to fight against Rome when you are looking to deny yourselves and live a life of care and humility. Even when one of his followers tried to take the violent approach with a sword, Jesus told him to stop and fix the damage that he had done. He healed the man who was struck with a sword. Jesus has done the opposite of these things. And the religious leaders make all of these things up. They, they lie about him. They are bringing these accusations without truth so that they can get what they think is right. And Pilate asks him, about these things. And he doesn't get much of a defense. Jesus isn't arguing for his, his innocence here. He's, he's not doing what I just did of showing how he's spent his entire ministry doing the opposite of these things. And, but the difference here is Pilate's not blinded by hatred towards this man. He asks him a question and he quickly determines that he is innocent. I find no guilt in this man. And shouldn't that be the end of it? A charge or multiple charges were brought against Jesus. A case was made. He was declared innocent. Doesn't justice dictate that he goes free at that point? He goes about his day. Yeah, it's a story about how he had an awful night, how he was falsely accused, but he gets to go free. That's what justice would indicate. But instead, despite being called innocent, Jesus is detained without defect. He is kept in prison. He is uh, c continuing to be under guard, even though he has done nothing wrong. He is detained without defect. We, we said Pilate was the governor of Judea, the, the whole region. And he hears uh, at the very last sentence about how Jesus was stirring people up from Galilee until here. And then Galilee kind of sets off this light bulb over his head. Did you, did you just say Galilee? Because there was a regional ruler over the area of Galilee a man named Herod. And, and technically, uh, Pilate would be over Herod in like the oppressive government org chart, uh, but he's, he still uh, reaches out to this man. And we don't know why. Like, is it that he's trying to pawn off this problem with Jesus off to him? Maybe. Or is it that he's respecting his authority over this region? It could be that as well. We, we don't know. But he hears that Jesus was in Galilee, and so he sends him over to Herod as well. Again, this is after he's already said, this man is innocent of the crimes that you've said. He continues to be detained. He continues to be under guard. He continues to be on trial. He sent over to Herod and we're told Herod really wanted to see Jesus. He, he must have heard all the incredible things that Jesus did in, in his region, in Galilee, all the miracles he, he had done, all the teaching. And, and uh, he's expecting to see one of the signs that he's done. 
But Jesus doesn't put on a show for him. In fact, he doesn't say a single word all while facing these accusations he's already been proven innocent of. And it starts to frustrate them. It says Herod's soldiers, even Herod himself, start to treat Jesus with contempt. They mock him. They specifically mock him as under this title of uh, being called a king. How can this one who's at their mercy, who's in such a lowly state, ever be called a king? They, they dress him in fancy clothes to, to mock him where he's at. How could he have ever been received the way he was on what we know as Palm Sunday when he is in this state right here? And then Herod sends him back to Pilate. Pilate again says, I have found no fault in him. Says, Herod has found no fault in him. And yet he continues to be detained. He continues to be under armed guard. He continues to be on trial for the thing he's been declared of innocent twice now by two different people. It heightens all the more how gross it is, how he was being treated by Herod and Herod's soldiers. They were mocking him. They were shaming him, knowing he was innocent. This is a gross miscarriage of justice here. This is not how someone ought to be treated, especially one who was called innocent. In each of these, we, we continue to almost ramp up the injustice that Jesus is facing. Accused without cause. I mean, that, that can't happen. Tried without truth. Now, now the lies are being told. Detained without defect. That, that's not something that ought to be done. And eventually we get to him being delivered over without due process. This is uh, where we get to the passage that was read for us earlier that Jesus has, has been called to be killed by, by Pilate, by the Roman authorities. Uh, and now the, the language from the crowd is switching a little bit more to release someone else instead. Kill this man, crucify him, and release to us someone else, a man named Barabbas. The other gospels tell us that this was a, a custom of Pilate's at the time, that he would release a criminal at, at Passover, maybe a way to uh, in, like, look kinder than he really was. You're like, you know how I have a very firm grip over this region and I'm, uh, and I'm oppressing you all, but look at how nice I am by releasing one of the prisoners of the many thousands that I've arrested. And we get this moment to where we have two people pitted against each other. Who is it that's going to be released? Is it Jesus, called innocent three times now, who has done nothing wrong? Or is it this man, Barabbas, who was guilty of insurrection? Another way of saying that, stirring up the people. Something Jesus was accused of doing, except for this man actually did it. Oh, and murder. He's killed people before. Which one is going to go free? What's well, Jesus who is delivered over to be crucified? And this guilty man who goes home free that day? In what world is this the right way to do this? In what world would we say that that is just? That there's no real trial here? There's no sense of fairness? Jesus isn't, isn't being treated as an innocent man and says he is the one who's delivered over to be killed and this guilty man is the one who goes free that day. That is the epitome of injustice. But we have one more to get to as well. One more that we will focus on here is that Jesus is convicted without conviction. 
Pilate has called him innocent three times in this passage. It says that he desires to set him free, that he wants to set Jesus free. And yet he's still willing to imprison him. He's still willing to keep him under trial. He, he even offers to beat Jesus to, to make the crowd happy. Like, how is that okay? Okay, so yeah, I know this man is innocent, but you seem really upset with him. How about I just beat him and then set him free? Would that make you guys happy? When would that ever be okay to do that? But he's willing to inflict pain and punishment on a man who does not deserve it. I cannot make that point enough. And Luke wants to make that point very clear as well. This man is innocent of all things, and yet Pilate is willing to go against what he wants to do, to not stand up for his conviction, to beat this man, to make the crowds happy. The crowds aren't happy. The religious leaders want one end result of this only. And they keep saying, crucify him. And they're starting to, to build up this pressure in this moment. It, it's, this crowd is starting to become unruly and it's just a few steps from an unruly crowd to a mob. And rather than being the cool head in the moment, you know, with the entire backing of the Roman Empire behind him, as someone who, whose job was to crush and quell mobs, r- rather than going into what his one role was to do, he succumbs. And he delivers this innocent man over to be killed. He goes against his convictions and he convicts this man who is innocent to be crucified, to be killed. As we, as we read about all the injustices that Jesus faces on his way to the cross, the, the sad reality is that, that this isn't a one-time moment that we hear what Jesus goes through and it it might make us think of examples that we've seen of people who receive similar treatment. It might make us think of injustices that we come across now, things that are morally wrong, things that are not fair. We hear stories of uh, a man accused of crimes and arrested for things that he did did not do. Or someone is facing a court date because lies are being told about them. That that would make us upset. That might make us angry. Someone is in jail even though they've been cleared of all crimes and they don't have a release date in the foreseeable future. Instead, it's just more court dates for them to be tried over and over again for the same thing. We would say that's wrong. We, We have it in our laws here that you cannot be tried for the same thing over again. We say that that's unjust to treat someone like this. We might make us think of criminals who, who go free while innocent people are still in jail. Justice not being served as, as a judge succumbs to pressure from the outside to do the morally wrong thing. When we come across injustices in this world, things that are, are not right, things that aren't fair, as we've said, that's, that's a word that continues to come up over and over again. There's a variety of responses that we might take. We, we might protest. We might get angry. Or maybe we lose hope. We get overwhelmed by it. Or maybe it just comes up so often that we're numb. Oh, another thing happened. Or we just deflect. We ignore. We go to other things. 
Maybe we feel helpless to act in that moment or the flip side could be the case that we feel the pressure. We have to act right now. Maybe we write to our congressperson or we write to the relative that we always disagree with and we say, see, this is where your line of thinking gets to. Maybe we just feel despair and utter, utter sadness as we continue to come across things that are unjust, things that should not happen. Or maybe it's not just morally wrong, but, but the fairness piece of it. Things shouldn't be happening this way as rights or health, as, as uh, people's dignity, or, or even just things going in a way that doesn't feel like it's fair. In all these situations, we have a variety of ways to respond. And maybe it's something that continues to come up as six people are killed in Nashville, as war is still going on in Ukraine, as Turkey is still spiraling, wondering how are they going to rebuild, as 34 million Americans are food insecure, as five-year-old me struggles to comprehend what it means that cancer means I'll never see my grandma again, as people who just desperately want to be parents have another month of being told no. I mean, how, how do we go on? How do we keep going through these moments over and over again? What, what hope do we have in the midst of injustice? I want to make it very clear. What we celebrate at Easter is the fact that salvation has been won for us. That Jesus goes to the cross to die in our stead to bring life to us. We talked a couple weeks ago that whenever someone is wronged or whenever someone does wrong, that there is a debt that is owed. And only one of two people can pay off that debt. The person who did wrong or the person who was wronged. And we've all gone against God. We've all done what is wrong, what he's called, uh, against what he's called us to do. So we either need to pay up or God does. And what we celebrate at Easter is that God does, that he pays this debt that was ours. And we talked about a couple weeks ago, this is why Jesus died. But why did Jesus have to die in this way? Wasn't there an easier route couldn't he have paid that debt, which is death. Yes, he, could have, he, he died on our behalf. That, that is how our debt was paid. But did he really need to go through all of this? Beyond just the pain of death, the pain of God's uh, wrath on sin, did he, did he really need to endure all of these injustices along the way? Is this what needed to happen? We get into an area of speculation, which I, I'm not the most comfortable with. I, I'm much more comfortable with, with going, what does the text say? But when, when we're asking those questions, it, it's, I maybe. But what the emphasis always is on is that Jesus chose and willingly went into a death that he knew would be this horrific, endured these justices, injustices, to not just bring us salvation, but to give us even more than that. And to show what I mean, I, I 
want to do the only thing that I know how to do. Let's go to a text. Uh, if you are willing, could you flip over with me to 1 Peter chapter 2? 1 Peter chapter 2. In this section, Peter, one of, one of Jesus' uh, followers, um, one who even betrays him on the night that Jesus was arrested, he is helping us see what it is that Jesus is doing, helping give us meaning as to what it is that we just read. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 22. Talking about Jesus, it says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of your soul. In this entire section right here, it's talking about how Jesus is our example. Jesus is our example of how we live in all of life, but here specifically, and this is what the wording is in verse 19, it says, for this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. I mean, the context is talking about a lack of justice here and how Jesus is our example in the midst of that. As we look at all that Jesus has gone through, all that he endured on his way to the cross, how he is accused without cause, how he's tried without truth, he is detained without defect, he is delivered without due process, he is convicted without conviction. As we look at all that Jesus goes through in this moment, these are things that when we see or we hear about, it saps us of hope. It makes us think, what is the purpose? How, we ask the question, how do we go on in these moments? Well, we go on by looking at the example that Jesus gives to us. How does he go on in this moment, knowing what he is about to go through? And he doesn't lash out. He, he doesn't uh, try to defend himself in these moments. He, he doesn't stand up and claim these rights that are his. In these moments, he, he treats with kindness and graciousness and love for those who are even reviling him. How do we go on in these moments? Well, we follow Jesus' example and how he went on in moments of injustice. But what I think is the best, uh, the greatest piece of the example that he gives to us here, what it is that gives us comfort and hope, even in the midst of the worst that this world can throw at us, is what was written in verse 23, which talks about what Jesus' focus was, that he continued entrusting himself to him, to God who judges justly. I mean, how do we go on in the midst of injustice in this world, of things that are wrong, both morally and what don't seem fair? Will we entrust ourselves in the one who judges justly? We entrust our, our hope and our peace, our, our, our future, our direction in the fact that we have a God of justice who is working now and will eventually work to bring all justice. And this is what helps us get to something that's beautiful, 
in the midst of all the the harms and hurts of this world, that we have a God who does not ignore what is wrong in this world. We have a God who does not ignore injustice. That, That he is working currently, he is aware, he is bringing about a restoration of all things. I mean, think about it. In the midst of the the hardest times of life, maybe maybe even after that list of things that are so wrong in this world, we get asked a question, sometimes by people who are genuinely seeking an answer, and sometimes by people who are trying to disprove God's existence. How can God allow this? Sometimes it's phrases, how can God allow this? Sometimes it's phrased as, how can God allow this? But in these times, it's this question of of how can this occur in a world where we have a good God who is powerful? And we get to a point where our answer is just, "I, I don't know. I don't know. I wish this didn't happen, and I don't know why it did. And that's an unsatisfying answer. It doesn't give us something to latch onto. It doesn't help us to see what's the purpose behind the pain. But what we do have, when we go to Luke 23, we have a moment that looks like it's the worst of injustice being acted out. That is a time that seems like God is silent. Why is Jesus allowed to go through all of this? Why is, why is he enduring all of these hurts? It looks like a time where God is inactive. You even read the story and Jesus himself is mocked with a very similar question to the one that we get asked. He's mocked by saying, if you're the Christ of God, then why is this all happening to you? In a moment that looks like it's out of hand, that God is not working, that he's doing nothing to stop this pain that's going through, we instead see the opposite of, that is true of that. That in all this injustice, all this pain, this hurt that Jesus is enduring is not the silence of God, but the shouting of God to bring about justice into this world. It is his action that he's going through, enduring all that we might, all that we will go through, enduring that on, uh, as our example, as our forerunner, to show that he is bringing the restoration of all things, which includes the wrong and hurts of this world. And the third thing that we have is how do we go on in this? Well, we have the reminder that Jesus brings healing. Jesus endures all of this injustice. He goes through the worst of this world, showing what it is that he's come to save and to restore, which is the worst of this world. By his wounds, you are healed. By his wounds, we have been healed. All throughout this passage in in 1 Peter 2, it talks about what this healing looks like. This is healing for wandering sheep, healing from sin, allowing us to once again be in relationship with our God, healing from the effects of sin, which we often think about as, as the effects of sin in our life, that that has been removed by Jesus dying, that the sin in my life has been, has been healed, has been covered over by him. And that's true, but it's healing for the effects of sin, which is everywhere, which influences every bit of who we are, every bit of this world that he is in. So by his wounds, everything has been healed. 
This is that he is enduring the worst of this world to save and restore the worst of this world. That he can sympathize with us in our pains because he has someone who's gone through those very pains. But he's not just someone who empathizes with us, like, like a good-hearted person who wishes he could do more. Man, that, that's a real bummer. It's just kind of how things, that's not who Jesus is. He is the one who is working now and will eventually in a last Forever way, forever way, eradicate all that we have to endure, all that he endured as well. Jesus endures the worst of injustices to bring God's perfect justice into this world. That he uh, helps us to the endure the worst that the world can throw at us now because he himself went through the same thing. That he is our example in suffering that he reminds us of our source of hope and trust, that we have a God who judges justly, that he gives us strength to endure all through his example and his power. And our salvation, our consolation, our comfort, our direction, our hope in life, this is what Jesus won for us by going to the cross and by going to the cross in this way by facing all of these injustices. And it is a price that he tells us and he shows us he is more than willing to pay for us. This is why we get so excited at Easter. This is why we have a special service around the day that a man died. Good Friday is a day we celebrate someone died because of what was won for us in that death. It is why on the first Sunday of every month, we, we celebrate who Jesus is, what he has done for us by taking communion together. 